Mental Health Monday is an informational podcast and should not be used to replace the specialized training and professional judgment of a healthcare or mental health care professional. Mental Health Monday can't be held responsible for the use of the information provided. Please always consult a trained mental health professional before making any decision regarding treatment of yourself or others. Self-help information and podcasts and information on the internet is useful, but it's not always a substitute for professional assistance. Unless otherwise noted, guests of Mental Health Monday are not doctors or licensed in any way. Our hope is to make a connection with you and be more open and honest about everyone's mental health. Enjoy the podcast. What's up? Welcome to another Mental Health Monday. My name is Riggs from Riggs and Alley in the Morning on 103.7 KISS FM in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Today, my guest, Dr. Michael Lindsay, who's the Executive Director of the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at NYU. That's New York University. Uh, the McSilver Institute, they're committed to creating new knowledge about the root causes of poverty, developing evidence-based interventions to address its consequences, and rapidly translating research findings into action through policy and practice. Dr. Lindsay is actually a child and adolescent mental health services researcher. And if you ask me, discussions about mental health need to start young. You gotta start with their kids when they're young. Now, you don't need to have a discussion with your six-year-old about the complexities of bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, but talking about simple things, making it simple for your kids. Are you happy today? Are you sad today? Why are you abnormally happy today? Why are you sad today? Why are you a little bit nervous? Breaking it down into simple terms and helping your kids express their emotions will help them express their emotions as they develop and they get older. And Dr. Lindsay works with a lot of kids in underprivileged and underserved communities where they have a lot of gaps in poverty, in access to education, in access to technology that they need. So how do we talk to our kids about mental health? And how do we talk to our kids about all the stuff that's going on in the news lately with injustice and videos that they're seeing? What do we do? I'm not a parent. I don't know it all. But Dr. Lindsay knows a lot more than I do. And I'm happy to have him on the podcast this week. Can you tell me about some of the important research that you're doing currently at the uh, the NYU McSilver Institute? Like, what are some of your active uh, research mm-hmm. projects you have going on? We do a lot of work in mental health disparities in particular. Um, we have a study that focuses on moms with PTSD who are involved in child welfare. Um, and we are providing a mental health treatment to address their trauma and depression so that they will not have further contact with child welfare and have improved parenting um, um, opportunities. We also have a study that focuses on adolescent depression and um, early suicide ideation or thinking about suicide. And we focus on low-income communities and, and children in those schools who are uh, you know, struggling with those issues. And we do also work around um, the persistence of uh, staying in school and being connected uh, positively in a social and academic way. And so we call that program Step Up and provide mentoring and other kinds of supports to, to, to youth who are on the cusp of dropping out of school. And then finally, uh, we do some work on uh, food insecurities um, that, you know, really help to address the challenges that uh, low-income families have around meeting their uh, food security needs. Are you talking about access to food or just nutrition in general or both? Yeah, both. Uh, access to food and, um, and nutrition, like, you know, what they can do in terms of healthy options. Sure. With respect to um, 
um, their access to certain types of food. Well, a lot of times it's what we put into our bodies can help our mental health overall as well, how we're feeding our brains, how we're feeding our bodies. It's all interconnected. Now, you've noticed, obviously, I think a lot of us have experienced some increased anxiety and depression over the last several months, obviously, COVID-19. We've had a lot of unrest in the from George Floyd to the injustice that have been going on for years. Um, what do you think are some of the biggest contributing factors of all the anxiety and depression, especially with, with adolescents as of late? Are there specific things that are affecting children as well? Yeah. Well, you know, we've seen an increase in anxiety depression, and I might add trauma among both adolescents and their families. Uh, certainly COVID has brought upon families and communities a lot of job insecurity, which leads to housing instability and other forms of disruption to the family system, as well as food insecurity. And so uh, COVID has had a really uh, tremendous impact, as we know. Uh, and the social unrest has been traumatizing on so many levels. For kids to see someone who looks like them, you know, be uh, accosted or killed by vigilantes, uh, law enforcement, uh, sort of... Or citizens makes, as well, anybody. Yeah, your citizens sort of yeah. makes you know, kids feel that, you know, that might happen to them. Yeah. And so uh, it's, it's, a, it's a really, really uh, traumatizing matter that um, I think has had a tremendous impact on the mental health and well-being of, of adolescents and, and contributes to the challenges that they're facing. Do you have like, any advice we could give to parents and how they can explain or maybe broach conversations about this with their children? If they're seeing these images on the news and social media, you bring up trauma. How do we, I think can, we can kind of bite off trauma at the pass if we confront it when it happens. What are some things that we can, some advice you could give to parents talking to their kids about this? Well, you know, I'm going to talk about things from a structural perspective, right? In terms of low income, poverty, I think the realities of many families and communities call for federal and local government response. What is the financial stimulus plan for community-based organizations, for example, who are oftentimes the lifeline of communities? Uh, in terms of virtual learning, what are the challenges related to access to broadband um, for, for kids who are in a space of virtual learning? How do we close the digital divide? Uh, we need to assess the technology needs of youth and their families, even as we are requiring distance learning. So many kids will be left behind as much as school systems are trying to meet these challenges. The reality is that it is probably not enough. How are schools going to equip students with the resources to meet their emotional and psychological needs? Um, things like ensuring that every school has the requisite mental health services children are going to need. Uh, so these are my uh, critiques on what is needed, but I offer them as advice in the sense that these matters require systemic response. Now, in that way, I think parents can talk to kids about the systemic factors, right, that are somewhat beyond their control, that are impinging upon their lives, and then help them to think about how best to advocate, to, to work on you know, the things that are before them in terms of school uh, and educating themselves, 
to 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 highlight these issues, to call them out, so that there is the appropriate response from our elected leaders. So we need those folks who are elected and who we empower to uh, to really, you know, um, ensure our well-being that you know, they are responding in the ways that we need to. So I think that lifts the burden off parents to feel personally responsible for what's mm-hmm. happening. And I think that that level of discussion with an adolescent has to happen so that they understand what they can be doing or what they need to do to ensure that they are informed and uh involved in the you know the electoral process right and they can make they can control some of it if they get out and they you know educate themselves on their leaders and they vote the people into office that are going to create the change that they need to overcome these these systemic problems that you talk about and Absolutely. you and you, you mentioned the digital gap and how crucial it is for kids to get the socialization from school and the learning and the one-on-one learning and now we're doing the virtual the distance learning how can we help with the emotional gap that's happening as well there is a digital gap it is systemic with that and a lot of kids don't have access to the tools that they need or even the internet in general how do we maybe bridge the emotional gap that's now happening because of the distance learning yes i think that first of all attunement to those issues are critical and parents are going to have to think about that right so how do they create spaces for family to come together or for kids to be connected with their peers. Um, I I have a a friend who has a younger son who has been continuing to uh, schedule play dates that are happening through Zoom or FaceTime. And I think that even for adolescents, parents have to think about ways that, you know, their, their, their children can come together and and be connected socially it's such a crucial part of adolescent development right um to be able to uh develop relationships and have you know healthy uh responses to uh relationship challenges and so we have to be intentional about continuing to create those spaces and opportunities for youth to have those connections to peers those social interactions, even if they can't be in a school with all of the friends and teachers, it can be, like you said, on a family basis. I think that's a great, great idea. Absolutely. With su- when you talk about suicide, I'm t- trying to switch in gears a little bit here, but you yeah. do, you know, study a lot of, you know, the suicide rate of children is also rising, unfortunately, and just ever everyone in general has been kind of on the rise. And one of the signs of suicide and de- severe depression is isolation and withdrawing from things, but. When you're being told to isolate and withdraw because of the pandemic that's going on, how do we continue to be vigilant to watch for signs in people, knowing that, well, they're already withdrawing and isolating because of COVID? So what are some other signs that we maybe need to be watching for? Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. And what we want to do with kids uh, in particular is to continue to engage them around how they're coping, how they're feeling. Uh, about everything that's going on uh, from COVID to social unrest to, as you said, this sort of digital, um, you know, disconnection, uh, well, the, 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 the educational disconnection that is facilitated by 
the digital component, but we also have to be thinking about that emotional component as well, right? Mm -hmm. And so what we find with, um, with adolescents is that sometimes when they're struggling with these internalized uh, mental health challenges like depression, anxiety, trauma, they oftentimes want the adults or caring individuals in their lives to pull it out of them. They're not always uh, sort of forthright with what's going on inside of them, uh, what they're feeling. And so uh, we've done studies with adolescents who said that they want to be engaged. They want loved ones, peers to pull it out of them and sort of get a sense of what's happening with them. And then that's when they are uh, re receptive and open to conveying or talking about what's what's going on you know you have to meet kids at their level as well right yeah and so sometimes you know we might want to have adult converse adult like conversations with kids but you know can we talk to kids and you know get a sense of their emotions while we're playing chess or uno or you know some kind of other like you know um Maybe they're losing a back. game. Sports, yeah. sports. Yes. About why are you angry about this? Let's talk exactly. about. Let's talk exactly. about. Let's talk about why you're feeling angry. Let's talk about why you're sad. Definitely, definitely. You always want to, you know, use any opportunity that you can to explore their emotions and to get them to articulate and convey what's going on. And we find that the kids who are struggling the most with anxiety or depression and trauma are the kids who are going to be closed off. And they're going to need that extra sort of support or that push to kind of bring it out and talk about what's happening. And I think you have to use very creative ways in which to do that and, um, and to sort of try to uh, destabilize the, the sort of uh, uh, hardened stance they might have around not wanting to share or talk about their emotions. I think that feeds into stigma, which is part of the problem with everyone's mental health in general. And I, I, I feel like the stigma with mental health is can be even worse in black communities because you already have the stigma in your own culture, and now you have the stigma of talking about your emotions. How can we normalize discussions about mental health with with our kids in black communities in general and help break through like almost a double stigma? What are some ways we can yeah. do that? Yeah. No. I've talked about this a lot in some of my research and, and even some of the talks that I give. Um, I think that trusted entities within the black community, trusted voices become really important. Like, for example, the church and hearing from, um, you know, the pastor or having programming in the church where black um, populations typically congregate, right, mm -hmm. to, um, you know, give them a sense of sort of uh, the, the opportunity that talking about, you know, mental health issues might present to be able to then identify people who might be struggling with the mental health issue. Because if you create a a, a sort of soft landing, if you will, for which to sort of talk about these issues. If you open up the door um, in destigmatizing ways to have these conversations, then it 
might have the effect of compelling a person to talk about it. And I think churches or other entities in the community that are trusted and valued are really, really important. And I, I want to say this, though. I think that stigma is also instructive of the historical okay. kinds of uh, experiences that people of color have had when they interacted with the mental health systems, right? So yes. the onus also has to be on systems that provide services to be open, to be uh, culturally competent in ways that will invite uh, in meaningful ways people of color who have traditionally been marginalized or uh, disconnected from those kinds of treatments, you know, what ushers them into the door, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, when they walk into, you know, mental health centers, do they see pictures or magazines that represent their lifestyle or their background, sure. you know? And so I think then that, as I mentioned, the onus is also on mental health uh, services and professionals to ensure that they are creating experiences that are welcoming, that are destigmatizing uh, in ways that are going to bridge that gap. Um, I think it's, it's okay for us all to, to feel our emotions, especially kids. Like it's okay to encourage them to feel sad, to feel angry, to feel happy and not holding back your emotions. Um, but with so many emotions running high, anger, sadness, anxiety, you, you've mentioned trauma several times. Do we need to prioritize our emotions with kids, like dealing with the trauma first, the anxiety next, the depression now? Or is there should we tackle it all at once? That's a really interesting question. It seems like a big cake. Are there yeah. different ones that we should eat first, or should we? how do we approach that? Because there's a lot of feelings. <laughs> yeah. You know? I, I, I think we need to just... Uh, simply prioritize our emotions um, in, in, in both good and bad times, right? Like, you know, life is filled with ebbs and flows, ups and downs. How do we stay centered? Mm -hmm. And certainly these times present challenges that weigh heavy on our hearts and emotions. You know, we feel the pain and, you know, we might process it in therapy. We might process it by talking to loved ones. But, you know, what we also need is that level of support that is going to be able to give us that opportunity to talk about uh, our emotions. And so how can loved ones then create that, that, that sense of welcoming of, you know, the opportunity to talk about emotions so that one can feel loved and receive the attention that they need. But I don't know if there's like a sort of hierarchy or yeah. uh, prioritization of how we deal with one emotion or the other. I think that we have to just, you know, get ourselves into an experience or a position of being able to emote, right? And then, uh, you know, we have to really hold our network those who are around us accountable for being able to give space to that. Um, mm -hmm. And I know traditionally uh, I was somewhat raised in a family where, you know, you kind of held your emotions in and unfortunately it may explode one day. And that is the danger of not being able to 
kind of talk about these things in a generalized sure. sort of way that, um, you know, the inability or, uh, or lack of expressing those emotions can one day become, you know, volatile, right? In the sense of it may come out the wrong way or we may say things that we really don't mean. Mm-hmm. And so I think if we um, certainly got into a practice, and I talk to families and parents about this a lot, about the importance of uh, checking in with your your kids about how they feel, um, getting them to talk about those feelings and putting words to them. Uh, if they can't put words to them, you know, can they draw a picture of it? Any sort of unique way, um, you know, for which they might express that emotion, it's important to talk about it and to get it out. Um, and I think in that way, we can support our kids in their um, sort of ability to to emote, to get it out, and you know, be able to deal with those emotions, both good and bad. Do you think parents need to be limiting the exposure that kids have to news, to events, to social media, or should be they be more transparent and just explain things as they come? Yeah, you know, I, I think that um, I certainly, from a personal perspective, limit. Yeah my uh, access to um, to images and the media and that sort of thing. Um, and so I think it's a part of just, you know, really great self-care to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think that a, a caregiver or a parent should set their kids in front of a TV and let them watch uh, news and receive that information unmitigated. I think that they definitely should have some, you know, sort of control over what and how much of that content is, is, is taken in because, you know, if you do it without processing um, what is being taken in, what is being viewed with kids, again, it can have a, uh, a negative uh, effect in well, terms kids are of, kids are very literal too. They take yeah. things incredibly literally. Yeah, if you don't yeah, because it. they're gonna they're gonna wonder is that gonna happen to me, right? Yep. And you have to put that into context for them. Um, that and and, and, it, and it, it, it it is unfortunate. I I, I have two um, uh, nephews. They're twins. They're they just turned fifteen years old, and we have been having discussions about this very issue. What it what does it mean to be black in America? Why, you know, do we see these things happen? And I try to put things into a historical context for them. I try to empower them around uh, what it means to be black, um, our history and our legacy as uh, as, as as a strong group of, of, of people um, who, yes, forced migration to the United States uh, from parts of, of Africa and otherwise. But, um, you know, I, I, I really try to laud for them the, uh, the, the positive and uh, the history of, you know, sort of what it means to be black so that I can, in America, so that I can, you know, buffer along with their parents the extent to which these kind of negative um, 
you know, sentiments or things that they're experiencing through media, social media, otherwise, uh, don't have a sort of caustic uh, effect on sure. their emotional and, and, and psychological health. Well, that's great. I'm glad that you do so much good work with, with the youth because I think a lot of the problem, we're, we're, we get screwed up as adults because we're not treated well as kids, you know? A lot of people are messed up when they're older because they're not taking the time to do things like you are doing with the important work at the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at NYU, which I think is a great thing to do. Um, and people can still get information on that online at mcsilver.nyu.edu. And uh, thank you so much for the important work that you're doing there. And thank you for being part of my podcast. I, I really appreciate your time. And uh, keep up the great work that you're doing. I really appreciate it. Um, thank you so much. You're the type of person that's going to create real change in the world. We need more people like you out there. Wow. More men more men speaking about mental health and more black men speaking about mental health. I mean, it's it means a lot to me as an advocate to have somebody... Um, with your voice and of your, I guess, your your elevation on our team as mental health advocates. So thank you. I mean, it means a lot. Thank you so much. And I'm humbled by everything you just said. I appreciate you. And uh, I thank you so much for this opportunity. Mm-hmm.